Alright, um, Acts chapter 7, we're finally here. We've been, we've been building up to Acts chapter 7 for about, uh, what is it now? How long have I been here? Two and a half years? Yeah. We've at least been building up to Acts chapter 7 for six months. But that's okay because I feel like the Word of God is, uh, um, is something that we shouldn't rush through. And so we're going to take our time going through the next uh, chapter. It's going to be broken down into four sermons because there are four accusations that we find Stephen facing. Last week we talked about Stephen. He's one of the, uh, uh, the men that, that the apostles, uh, or one of the men that the church chose to kind of take some of the burden of service away from the apostles so that they could completely devote themselves to the teaching and the preaching of the Word. Now, Stephen is said to have been a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He is also presented as being full of grace and power. So Stephen's not just some ordinary guy that they found sitting around with nothing to do to fill a spot that the church needed to fill. See, the the early church was careful about who they selected for, for the leadership positions, and we find that Stephen met those requirements. Now, Stephen full of grace, full of power, full of faith, is performing great wonders and great miracles, and he's even preaching the gospel to the people. And so we see that Stephen finds himself in some trouble with some of the Jewish leaders because he was performing all of these signs and wonders, and he was was preaching the gospel. And so as we've discovered is the custom of the the Jewish leaders is that, that they've arrested Stephen, they brought him in. Well, first they confronted him. Okay, they confronted him. They brought him in for questioning. And um, we're going to find out kind of what happens from Stephen or to Stephen in the seventh chapter. But what it's important to realize before we move forward is that Stephen finds himself receiving the exact same treatment as the other apostles. See, there's no distinction. None. Between an apostle, a prophet, a preacher, a teacher, or any other person in the church. That when you are living a life of following Christ, you will find persecution. It's it's an equal opportunity for every Christian who pursues God and pursues obedience to the Word. It doesn't matter if you're at the very height of, of the church world or the very lowest of the church world... All of Christ's followers will experience persecution. So, Stephen's been brought in. We see in chapter 6, verse 10, they were unable to stand up against his wisdom, wisdom and the spirit whom he was speaking. See, they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like any of the church stuff, the, the Christian things that was happening. So, what they would normally try to do is they would try to discredit the claims. What's the quickest way to get people to stop following someone? Discredit their claims. What's the quickest way for a church to dissolve and and die? It's for a pastor to be found discredited, unholy, or unethical, or or whatever, whatever else the situation may be. And so, what we see here is that that they've brought him in, they've tried to question him, they tried to discredit his claim, but verse 6, chapter 10 says, they were unable 
to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit whom he was speaking. They tried to reason with him, but their reasoning fell short. They tried to outsmart him in the scriptures, but they were unsuccessful. They tried to disprove his claims, but couldn't do that either. So what's left to do when you can't discredit someone, but you just have to? Where else do you, what, what else do you resort to? You make up stuff. At this point, the only option is to resort to slander, and that is exactly what the men in the synagogue do. They accuse Stephen of blaspheming the four most sacred things in all of Israel. Verse 11. uh, Chapter 6, verse 11. We see that the synagogue leaders persuaded some men to accuse Stephen of blaspheming Moses and God. Okay? And then in verse 13, we also see that he's accused of blaspheming the law and the temple. So you got God, Moses, the law, and the temple. The four most sacred things in all of Jewish custom, Jewish culture, this man is facing the accusation that he has lied about all of them. And this is where we pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. You have the synagogue leader looking at Stephen saying, this is what you've been charged with. Is it true, the high priest asked. And look at what Stephen does. This is is where Stephen... um, I told you last week that you're going to see a brilliant defense of the faith. You're going to see an absolute marvelous rebuttal to accusation. Well, here it is. This is how he starts. Brothers and fathers, he said, listen. He's saying, we're not so different, you and I. Brothers and fathers, we come from the same heritage. We come from the same culture. We come from the same family and traditions. You know, you've got to understand that, that, that I'm one of you. I came from where you came from. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and go away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this land you now live in. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. But he promised to give him, give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. Verse 6. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would enslave and oppress them 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves. God said, after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same with Jacob, and Jacob with the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom and insight in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and appointed him ruler over Egypt and over the whole over his whole household. And then verse eleven. Then a famine 
And great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors the first time. The second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers, and Joseph's family came, became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. In response to the four accusations, what we're going to see tonight is that Stephen responded by doing four things himself. He has four uh, accusations placed upon him. Well, he responds with four things to defend himself and the faith. So, what I want you guys to see is, number one, he's going to keep their attention. This Actually, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this sermon this week, and I was like, you know what, this is not a really, this is a pretty good outline for just preaching in general. One, you've got to keep their attention. You've got to meet them where they are. You've got to speak their language. You've got to talk to people so that you don't lose them, you know, ten minutes into your sermon. Unless you preach a ten-minute sermon, and wouldn't that be great? But we're not going to do that tonight. So, he keeps their attention and he does this by speaking about the Jews' favorite subject. What do you think it was? Themselves. The things that the Jews liked the most was to hear about their custom, about their tradition, about their history. And so, the entire chapter of Acts 7 is a beautiful and eloquent uh, recounting, a recitation of the Jewish tradition. They took pride in all that God had done for them and, 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 and they believed that their salvation was guaranteed by their heritage of being Jews. So what better way to keep their attention than to build into your defense the things that they love to listen to the most. And that's exactly what he does. But, but more than that, he defends the faith. In his attempt to keep their attention, he's built in this thing called apologetics. A giving an account a reason why something should be believed. And so, he defends the faith, but he doesn't use man's logic. He doesn't use the latest philosophical devices. What, is it, what does he go to? He stands firmly on the Scriptures. He uses the Old Testament Scriptures to paint a marvelous picture of who Christ is. Number three... He indicts them of their sinfulness. And we're going to see this tonight. He, he basically turns the table and instead of being the accused, he all of a sudden, not, he basically becomes the accuser. He, he flips the table on them and says, listen, this is what you've done. And so every good preacher should always seek to do this. For it is our sinfulness that is the problem. It isn't our self-esteem. It's not our bank accounts that we ought to be worried about. It's the fact that we are created by a holy God to have a relationship with that holy God, but our sinfulness has offended Him. In fact, in fact, the, the idea of our sinfulness is not just that we sin from time to time and hurt God's feelings. It's that until we turn our lives over to Christ and we are covered by the, the, the righteousness of Christ, it's not that our sins are offensive to God, it's that we are offensive to God. And it is only in Christ 
that we can be covered with a with a with with a non-offensive righteousness that we we don't have without Christ. And so in his indictment of of the people accusing him he always and as a preacher does should present Christ as the remedy for that that problem. And that's what he does. That's the fourth thing he presents. He presents Christ. And we're going to see how Stephen masterfully presents and makes much of Christ to his accusers. So, so this is what we're not going to see tonight. You're not going to see a man who is whining, complaining, or trying to avoid confrontation. You won't see some weak, sad, scared Christian who cannot defend his faith against persecution. And so I want to just go ahead and let you guys know tonight that I'm going to set Stephen up as the Scripture sets Stephen up as a model for every Christian. He firmly knew what he believed. He knew why he believed. He was able to defend what he believed. He staked his life on what he believed and he was willing to die for what he believed. All of us should pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us with such a boldness in our own faith. So we have four accusations. We're going to see four responses to those accusations as we study the, the, the chapter 7 over the next few weeks. But tonight we're only going to focus on one. And so this is, this is the accusation. We heard him speaking blasphemous words against God. Sound familiar? Think back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 62 through 65. We, we see Jesus is being questioned about whether or not He is the Messiah. And when He responds to the high priest, the high priest stands up, tears clothes in anger, and He says, He has blasphemed! Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. Stephen is facing basically the exact same charge. And isn't it funny that everything Jesus promised that his followers would encounter when they follow him, we see occurring in the book of Acts. Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you give your life over to the will and the purpose of God and you completely surrender yourself as a follower and no longer a leader, no longer a decision maker, but as a follower, submissive to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And we see that that happened in the book of Acts. We see that Jesus promised all throughout the Gospels that you are going to experience persecution. As a follower of Jesus, people are going to be offended by you. But the good news is you're no longer offensive to God. And that's who you really need to worry about. And so don't worry about these other people you're offending. God's going to take care of you. God's going to give you the words that you need to say. And we see that, ex that exact same, happen same, same thing happening here. And so... Let's look at the response. We come to Stephen's response in verse 2. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He didn't say your father Abraham, or that would have, that would have you know, taken him out of the conversation. He says, Our father, me and you, we came from the same place. But, but look at the way he says it. He says, in such a crafty way, the charge against him is that he has spoken falsely about the God of Israel and the look at the way he addresses God. He says, the God of glory. 
Essentially, in this one statement, Stephen is affirming that he believes everything about the God, about God that Israel, his accusers, believe. He's saying, we believe the same things about God. I don't know why you're saying that I've blasphemed God. Look, He's the God of glory. John MacArthur puts it this way, we can talk about the God of love, or the God of justice, or the God of grace, or the God of wisdom, or the God of righteousness, or the God of wrath, or the God of power, or the God of presence, or anything we want. But we can just say the God of glory, and that encompasses every single thing that God ever is. It's the most comprehensive term. And so when, we, when he addresses his brothers and fathers, he fully identifies himself with their theology about God. He's saying, I don't know why you're saying that I'm blaspheming God. Look, I, I totally believe everything that you believe about God. Not only this, but he is drawing attention to the fact that he is operating in the power of God's glory. Look at, look at uh, just a few verses up in chapter uh, 6, verse 15. Look at this. This is what it says. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. When you said the word glory around a first century Jew, you know what they thought of? You ever heard, you ever heard Brother Ronnie talk about the Shekinah glory? The glow and the light of God's presence? Okay, that's what that's what they were that's what they were thinking about. He says the God of glory, and they're like, oh yeah, the God of glory, the the God of light, the God the, the God who illuminates our path. All you know this 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 magnificent light that gives life and gives you know sustenance and 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 so what he's saying here is that as his face is lit up like an angel. Shining with the glory of God, he's saying, I'm, I'm, it's the God, of, he, he addresses it as God of glory while the glory of God is shining on his face. Essentially what he's saying is you're accusing me of blaspheming God, but look at my face, I'm shining with the glory of God while you're, while you're accusing me of not knowing anything about this God. It was as if, it was as if, God was putting a stamp of approval on Stephen's face. But see, they didn't want to see that. So, so, so what, we, what we have here is an accusation that he's blasphemed God while he stands in the manifestation of God before his accusers. And so this whole issue of he's blasphemed God seems ridiculous. But like I said last week, persecution doesn't have to make any sense. In the next few verses, we see that the synagogue leaders uh, get a little history lesson about God. Okay. In fact, the entire seventh chapter is a history lesson. And in the first eight verses, what Stephen established is that he fully believes in the same God of Israel as his accusers do. 
And he keeps their attention by talking about their favorite topic, which was, as we said earlier, is themselves. And so the first thing we, we said Stephen would accomplish has been done. He kept their attention. The second thing um, that we said Stephen would do has been done. He's, he's defended the faith. He used Scripture to defend the faith. In fact, half of what he's already said to them is Scripture. He starts with Scripture. He stands on Scripture. He goes back to Scripture. And see, when you know the Word of God and you can quote the Word of God, then you can defend the Word of God with the Word of God. Did y'all follow that? Scripture is fully defendable because it's fully perfect. You just got to know it. Some of you are preparing to leave this little town of South Jackson or Pinson or wherever you live. Some of you are going to colleges. Some of you are just, you know, venturing out into different areas of the world in, in the years to come. And this is what I want to warn you of. You must know the Word of God. Because, because in your little shell of protection and shelter... When you get out of that, you're going to find that not everybody believes what you believe. And you're going to find that, that, that a lot of people have very convincing arguments as to why what you believe is wrong. And if you're not grounded in the Word of God, if you don't have a passion to study and to know and to, and to just live the Word of God every day, you're going to find yourself very vulnerable to having your faith completely dissected. But you can avoid that. You can, you can train yourself up. You can, you can dig into the Word and build that foundation. At this point, Stephen has only two more things to do. I told you what he was going to do. He was going to keep their attention. He was going to defend the faith. He's going to indict them. Okay, Basically, he's going to bring a charge against them. That's what indicting means. He's going to accuse them. And so, he does this in verses 9 through 16. Okay? He presents Christ while simultaneously setting the stage for his verse 51 indictment. Now, I know that we're not going to preach the rest of the chapter, but I want you to look at verse 51 here real quick. This is where he finally comes around to indicting them later on. But this is, what he, this is where we are. Verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people! With uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. You know what a stiff-necked person is? Somebody who refuses to look any other way than the way that they look. I'm not looking to the left, I'm not looking to the right. I'm set. Not going to change my mind. stiff neck. I won't turn to see what else is out there. And to consider other options. He basically calls them stubborn, foolish, ignorant. So first, let's take a look at the indictment. Verse 9, Stephen says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his trouble and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. The patriarchs 
or sacred as well. Okay? This is, this is like the, the getting down to like the family tree of Israel. They all, Israel came from Abraham. Okay? So everybody goes back to Father Abraham, but, but whenever you, you get into like the, the regions or, or the families or whatever, it was like you came from one of the 12 patriarchs. Okay? You guys with me still? One of Jacob's sons, those 12 guys, you heard of the 12 tribes of Israel? That's what we're talking about, the patriarchs. And these guys were sacred because they were kind of like the founding fathers or the forefathers. And so, so what, what Stephen is doing here is that he's bringing about an awareness. He's, he's indicting them with the truth. He's saying that for so long, you guys have almost idolized your, your heritage. You've idolized the men that you've come from. But listen to what your patriarchs did. He's, because they, they wanted to be good Jews. And so the good Jews did what the forefathers did. And they've done exactly what the forefathers have done. And he's going to build his case around this. He says, he says the patriarchs were the ones who rejected the anointed one of God, Joseph. And they were jealous of Joseph. They were threatened by Joseph. And they didn't want Joseph to be the one to rule over them. So what do they do? They get together. They conspire. They scheme. They sell him into slavery. Okay? And so Stephen is saying, you're no better than your forefathers. And you think your forefathers are great, but listen, they're the ones who sold their brother into slavery. They rejected the one that God had set apart to lead. They rejected him. They sold him into slavery. They had nothing to do with him. And so there's the indictment, is that you're just like your ancestors. You guys still with me? I know that, that I'm trying to, to connect a lot of dots here. But maybe this will help. In verse 10 through 16, Stephen, after the indictment, after he says, listen, you've done exactly what your patriarchs have done. And this is why it's so important for you to realize that you've done exactly what your patriarchs have done. Because listen to this. Here's Jesus. Stephen presents Christ as perfectly as any preacher before him ever has or after him ever has. He recounts for them the life of Joseph. He doesn't tell the whole story because by then they're going to know what happened to Joseph. He just has to mention the name of Joseph and these guys are going to have the whole story playing out in their minds. But for our sake tonight, let me, let me show you how it is an indictment on their lives of rejecting Christ when he says you're just like your patriarchs. You're just like your forefathers. And he presents Christ at the same time accomplishing all four of the goals. Listen to this. Joseph was the chosen and favored one of his father and was sold into slavery by his envious brothers. Jesus is the chosen Son of God who was sold in envy by his Jewish brothers to be crucified. You say, well, when was Jesus? Jesus wasn't sold. Yes, he was. Judas, 30 pieces of silver, sold him. Price of a common slave, 30 pieces of silver. Okay? Joseph was arrested as a result of a false accusation. You remember that? Potiphar's wife? Joseph was a good looking dude, not unlike myself. 
finds himself in a compromising situation. Potiphar's wife is coming on to him. He finds himself alone and she's coming on to him, but he's faithful and loyal to Potiphar. He's a righteous man. He, he, he basically bolts. He runs. He, he gets out of there, but he doesn't get out of there without losing his, his coat. And so Potiphar's wife, she's scorned. She's been rejected. Her feelings are hurt. She feels a little devalued. Her love tank is empty. And so what does she do? She goes to Potiphar and she says, Oh, Potiphar, one of your servants came on to me and look, I've got his coat, but I was such a good wife. I, you know, false accusation, boom. Put in, put in prison. Sound familiar? Wasn't Jesus arrested on some false accusations? Wasn't Jesus falsely accused over and over and over again as a drunkard and a blasphemer and a glutton? Somebody who didn't revere or respect the law? Joseph was placed in prison, okay, for a time. But he was brought out of prison and eventually he was brought out to rule over all of Egypt. You guys are going to see this one, right? Jesus was placed in the grave for three days. He came up out of that grave and He is going to rule over this earth for all of eternity. He is going to rule. Joseph was rejected by his own people, but he was accepted by the Gentiles in Egypt. Jesus, again, rejected by his own people. And for the last 2,000 years... Gentiles all over the world have been accepting him as their ruler. Joseph was rejected as Israel's leader, and God brought a famine to the land. We see that. Jesus was rejected by Is- as Israel's Messiah, and God has brought spiritual famine to the Jews. It's empty. Judaism is is divinely invented by God. But now it's as empty as any other religion that lacks Christ. It's starving for purpose. And they keep going back to their rituals and their traditions and they, they're not going to find it there. During his second appearance to his brothers, Joseph was made known to them. Okay? Now, I'm not going to focus too much on this, but just know that there are many people, myself mostly included in that, that believe that God is not done with Israel. That God made a promise. And the Bible teaches us that God's promises are never broken or unfulfilled. Never. So you can look at Romans 10, Romans 11, and you can go back and look at this. But get this, it wasn't until Joseph's second appearance to his brothers that he was made known to them. And I believe that it won't be until Christ's second coming that he is completely made known to the Jews and they are ultimately saved from from, as God's people. Because I don't believe that God is done with the Jews. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. We also see that it is only in in Joseph that his people could find salvation from the famine and fulfillment for their needs. And we know that it is only in Jesus that we can find salvation from the holy judgment of God and fulfillment of our need for forgiveness and love. Joseph brought complete forgiveness and restoration to his brothers. 
He was completely justified in having them starve or put in slavery or even killed. We would read that in any other book and we would say, they get what they deserve. But thank God that He is not a God who gives us what we deserve. Stop demanding fairness or it's going to turn around and bite you in the rear end. Fairness is for you to to be completely separated from God because you have completely offended God. Try not to. Give it a day. See how it goes. Fair is judgment. But see, thank God that He's also a God of grace and mercy. And so what He does through Jesus is only in Jesus does He provide complete restoration and the fulfillment of everything we need. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Joseph gave, and this is where we're going to close, guys. I'm, I'm done. Joseph gave specific instructions to his brothers concerning their salvation. Jesus also gives us specific instructions concerning our salvation in Him. Faith, obedience, and repentance. That's it. If you can remember the word for, F-O-R, you can remember faith, obedience, and repentance. That is what, those are our instructions. To have a faith that moves us. To not have an intellectual faith where we just agree with something that's said to us, but have a faith that literally causes us to behave a certain way. And that is going to lead us to obedience. We will be obedient to the Word of God. You will be obedient to the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And you will repent. You will repent of your sinfulness by every day giving your life over to God. Giving your life over to the the Master, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Let's pray.